I spend half my day now just thinking like, what is the next craziest thing we should be doing, right? And those ideas don't percolate sitting in front of Excel, pounding something out. They sit, um, you know, running at Memorial Park because then you can clear your head and you're like, wait a minute, if we did this, I can drive costs out of this and be the lowest cost provider in our gas transport business because I'm going to cross-utilize employees on location. So I should go make a $200,000. It's a bit of a stretch, but it's not that far off of it. And so that's that's the advice I have for myself and for others. But that helps you in everything in life, right? It's not just you know work-related. You give your brain downtime, great things will just pop out of it. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. And today we have a journey to share and we cannot wait to get into it. We have Nathan O. He has an extensive background in natural gas fuel technology and generational development across North America. Prior to VoltaGrid, Nathan co-founded Soteris and it is associated USA business unit, which included the development and expansion of the organization over the last decade to one of the leading low carbon energy solution providers. Nathan was an executive for Soteris since its foundation. It was instrumental in expanding the USA platform from no presence in 2014 to now one of the leading natural gas fuel companies nationwide. Prior to Soteris, Nathan worked as an investment banking covering the energy capital markets. And on top of that, Nathan was recognized in Heart Energy 40 Under 40, as well as one of the Houston innovators to know by the innovation map of Houston. But this really doesn't tell much about Nathan as he has been an extensive provider to the industry in multiple ways from starting the company that he has today to growing it. And we're going to get into that and the jobs that he has created from literally, like like I said in the beginning, no presence in the U.S. to now one of the leaders. So thank you so much for coming on today, Nathan. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited to be here and thank you for both for having me and Apologize it's taken so long, but I'm truly excited to have a chat with you guys and just kind of share the story for all your viewers. So Nathan, tell us about growing up in good old Canada, winter capital, cold. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Where in Canada are you from? And when we spoke to you, you mentioned that from a very young age, you were just so intrigued by how things worked. You were one of those kids that would tear things apart, try to put them together, and you seem to just love anything that has to do with electrical outlets or electrical extension cords and you just wanted to you know dive deep into it tell us a little bit about maybe where this passion came from and did your parents see that in you at a young age and then that's why they decided to push you maybe into like an engineering side or because you went into investing banking so i want to see how that like it didn't go that way into Mm -hmm. investing banking yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So originally from St. John, New Brunswick, so small town Canada, early smaller town Canada, about 60, 70,000 people where we grew up. And I think my electrical endeavor career started almost when I was about one. 
it's kind of funny. I didn't have a teddy bear. Or I didn't have like a stuffed animal I'd sleep with in my crib. My mom would put a vacuum cleaner in there because that was what I absolutely loved to apparently sleep with. I just got married in September last year and all these photos started coming up, baby photos with sleeping with vacuum. So oddly enough, I guess it was in my DNA to somewhat incorporate power into my future career. It didn't really stop. I then started collecting upward machines and then ended super weird and then ended up as my family would travel around the world, what they would bring me back as the souvenir would be an extension cord from the country they visited. And I had a collection of 50 extension cords from all the countries around the world. Like I was like the biggest nerd on the planet. So I kind of grew up through that cycle in small town Canada. I worked for a big private family called the Irving family. They own Canada's largest refinery and really kind of developed a passion for finance there. I was working on a project for a large scale LNG import terminal and a second refinery and really kind of developed this path of, hey, you know, small town Canada is great, but you have this itch, right? You got this itch to kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And so lo and behold, there's this one day, I think it was Goldman Sachs had arrived in the office of Irving and they were talking about all this finance stuff. And I remember going up to Arthur Irving himself and saying like, how do I become one of those guys? Like that looks so cool. And you know what? I got to give that family credit. They said, you know what? Like, we'll support you in kind of finding a career in finance. And so through a couple of connections to them, I ended up in Toronto for a summer internship at one of the big Canadian banks in their utility and electrical team, funny enough, and kind of migrated into that group and transitioned out to Calgary. So over that kind of span of about 10 years, I went into the investment banking business in Toronto and kind of popped out in the oil and gas and hybrid utility business in Calgary. So it was awesome. And Calgary's a fantastic spot. And, but you know, you're always pushing, right? You're always pushing for the next kind of big jump and took the jump from Calgary to Houston six years ago now and haven't looked back. Wow. So you made what a time span of like 15 years, you talked about it in like three minutes, but it was an incredible you know, learning experience through that time. And I'd like to kind of go back where you mentioned, you know, working for Ivorine, I believe, but you spoke about they were one of the oil and gas companies in Canada, correct? Correct. Yeah. Irving. Yeah. You knew Irving, CEO. Can you talk about how did you make that connection? And at such a young age too, although yes, I do feel that you probably had this experience that was broader than others, you know, knowing extension cords and being an electrical and having that <laughs> Love so early on, but how did you make those connections? If you're, I mean, were your parents, you know, connected in energy at all? Or can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, this is going to be the most unconventional answer to that question. You know, my mom's a school teacher, my dad's a carpenter, so really weren't at all connected to energy or oil and gas. That connection came from when I was 13, I wanted to be a little entrepreneur. And so I started a paper route. And I started delivering papers to like 20 homes. And then when I was 14, I grew it to, I bought another route as like a little entrepreneur. And so I grew my route by, I doubled it. And one of my customers on my route, my paper route, was Arthur Irving himself. And so every Christmas, I would go and deliver the final paper before Christmas. And you get you a little bonus check, you know, as a little paper boy. And I remember asking them like, I post my bonus check. Can I have a job? Like, I really want to have a job, you know, because it's my next leg, you know? And I had to give me an interview and I got a job. 
That's incredible. Wow. I think I was their youngest corporate employee. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And I stayed with them for, they put me through school, put me on like spring break, at Christmas, I'd work on the weekends, anytime I could. And that's how I saved enough money to get through university. So, yeah. That's a really good story, actually. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Feral because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veral.com. Veral Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal. I mean, how incredible. It just shows though that you know how to take the opportunities maybe that you're given or that you create for yourself and know how to use them properly. And just like you see an opportunity and just expand on it. Like I know that I could get a job with him and then you're curious. And I think that's what's been really great. And what's nice about it is you are a big entrepreneur now. And it's really nice to see that even from a young age, that was kind of in you. And so we want to dig a little bit more into that. So when you were about 24, you were, you know, working in investment banking, that's the route that you kind of had chose. And you were going to continue to pursue your CFA and kind of continue in that route, but you quickly realized maybe it wasn't worth obtaining and you decided to change your direction quickly and maybe go more into business. Tell us a little bit about Sir Terrace and how that got started, especially with no prior connections to oil and gas or a family, you know, that's in this business. How did you build your network and really get people to trust you? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> And so if I rewind, oh geez, 14 years ago now, it was me and one of my best friends in Calgary and we were sitting around, I just got back from Columbia, we were financing oil wells when I was at the investment bank down in Columbia and we saw this business, this truck natural gas business. And we started recognizing an opportunity for it in Canada. But again, when you're 22, 23, 24 in a capital intensive business, like it's hard, you know, and, and I'd say the venture capital market in Canada doesn't exist as streamlined as it does in the US. And so, you know, we wrote this, what I think was a great business plan, but we didn't really know how to bridge it. Like, how do you get the money? What do you have to do? What documents do you have to get set up? Does anybody even know how to buy a truck? You know, I remember walking to Kenworth and I said, I need a truck. And they're like, well, what truck? And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) But, you know, the best advice I have is like, you just got to keep pushing like, you know, cause like life is just a constant battle of like challenges and whether it's life, you know, in your personal life or it's in being an entrepreneur, like for every one success, there is 10 to 15 challenges, but it's, so it breaks people, right. Where they can't handle the pain and the stress that goes through it. But, you know, when you get pushed into a box, that's what really enabled us because we almost me and my buddy almost went bankrupt. I remember I had when well, my current wife was getting married, I couldn't even take her on dates on Wednesdays because it was half price wine on Wednesdays only. And I couldn't afford the full price bottle of wine. 
And so, you know, because we almost went bankrupt. I remember I had $68,000 on my visa. My mom was paying my rent. I couldn't afford it. And so you talk about like finding a stress test on like pushing through problems. We didn't have a choice because if I gave up, that $68,000 visa bill was coming due, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because we were working for equity. And so it's, the, the, and it exists in today's, you know, in the raw men today where, you know, every day is just a different slate of challenges. And so you just prioritize them. I write them down and we just work them, just work the problems. Because I promise you for every problem, there is a solution out there. And you just have to have the patience and the strength to just push through them because they will break you. I'm so glad you shared this because there's so many people today that see your success of where you're at, like Nathan today moment. And they wonder, well, I want to do that. Like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like, I want to make all this money. I want to, you know, they have this like huge vision of what you get, but they don't understand the sacrifice that came with it. It's not like Nathan today just started a year ago. You just talked about these challenges that most people would, like you said, break in the middle of them. You know, what advice can you give to those people that want to try something? They feel like they have a great idea. And you said that keep pushing, but Outside of that, you know, there's a lot of challenges that people face and how do you prioritize and like, how do you on a daily basis? Are you like, okay, I have a million things I need to do, but this is what's important today. Is there a strategy that you use in order to do that through to the next step? Yeah. So, so I'll answer two ways. So in, I'd say six, seven years, eight years ago, you know, what I used to do is just prioritize because I had no one else. You know, we were a small group and had to work these problems. We didn't know a lot of stuff, really, like didn't have the experience. And so I used to every morning just write myself a to-do list. And then I would work through the list every day. Because what I find is, you know, the more you accomplish within a day, the faster you get, right? You know, it's the classic saying, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So that's what I used to do is like give myself two or three tasks in the morning that I had to have accomplished by maybe 8 a.m., which could be simple. It could be like follow up with X person, do this, you know, go book a date with my wife, whatever, enter. And then once you get accomplishing and the day starts going, you just get the ball rolling, right? And then you blink and it's, you know, five o'clock and you're like, all right, you know, I worked my problems. I worked them. Because what happens is for a lot of entrepreneurs is they get bogged down was trying to solve like big things and spinning and spinning and not feeling a level of accomplishment. And so my best advice of how even today is I take really big problems and break them up to little milestones. And then I work the problem, you know, gates, one, two, three, four, whatever it is. And maybe a problem could take me a year to solve, but then I set milestones for every week, every month to work that problem. And then guess what happens? But, you know, at some point through the problem, you're like, wow, like this is going away. You know, that's my best advice. And then as you grow your company, as you grow and you have more resources and hire people, you know, today, Nathan on March of 23rd versus Nathan March of 23rd, 2021, two years ago, you know, we didn't have the depth of the organization today. I just see like literally like the most awesome, badass people that work at Voltagrid now who I just trust. You know, like, because if I try to micromanage, it breaks me It breaks me and it destroys the culture. And so, you know, how I keep the train on the tracks for how I function today is I have one-on-ones for 15 minutes once a week with kind of my direct reports. And then actually usually a layer below them too, 
And I encourage every part of the organization to go two levels below because you get a lot of good information. So that you, you know, keep a really good culture forming. And then I let people do their jobs because if I try to micromanage all day long, I become useless. I'm not thinking about other bigger picture things. And so trust your people, hire great people. And we pay people, you know, for really what they're worth and really have pushed the culture where, you know, here's a great stat. Every single employee of UltraGrid is a shareholder or an option holder. Every single one of them, like top to bottom. And literally every single person of UltraGrid is on the exact same bonus plan to a T. And so we've created this reward structure where from CEO down, we all row together. Like we succeed together and we fail together on the exact same program. So that's what's really been kind of the key to our success is, and I know the classic story is always people, 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 but, you know, I think we've taken it one step farther of hire the best people and reward the people for what they're really worth. I love what you said, and I want to get deeper into VoltaGrid, but before we get there, because there's so many questions I have around just the growth of it is... You mentioned you moved from Calgary to Houston. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Why did you move? And when did the idea to start Voltigrid start? Because you ended up leaving your first startup and then you started Voltigrid and then there's COVID in the middle and somewhere in between there or at the start. So bring us back to that portion of your life. Yeah, so we moved down in April, 2017. I came early. It was also too hot. I wife didn't want to come down. It's too hot over the summer. So moved down, I came in April, did the commute back and forth every week to Calgary. She came down in January 2008. You know, totally new world, uh, new country, but not really. You know, there's five direct flights a day between Houston and Calgary. And so kind of just felt like a elongated drive from the woodlands to Houston, quite honestly, if you get caught in traffic. And so it's pretty neat. And we had a lot of good friends down here already. I met some awesome, got a nice little Texas family now, which is great. And so, yeah, so we, we basically developed Sakaris' U.S. business, took it for almost zero to what it is today. When I left, it was the dominant CNG and RMG distribution business in the U.S. And, and still had a ton of respect for the guys that have team members that are still there and all the execs. And we've got a lot of common cross shareholders as well between the companies. So really enjoyed the move. And I would say it's not little town Canada. Houston is not. And so it takes a little bit to get used to. But, you know, the formula doesn't change, right? You know, Middletown, Canada, big city, Houston. Like, if you're an honest person, you work really hard. And, like, you just have this, like, kind of passion just to, like, drive and create something. Oh, man. It is, like, the whole recipe ingredients is now on steroids. Did you find any challenge when you got to Houston, you know, when you started your next business, which was VoltaGrid? finding investors or where you are, since you were already in that community, you kind of had an idea of how to start your second business. And on that point, when you started VoltaGrid, what did you learn from your first startup that you wanted to make sure you didn't do the second time? Yeah. Yeah. No, those, those are some, it's okay. So I'll answer the first one first. It's a little different, right? You know, so Soteris publicly announced that sold for about a billion dollars just before Christmas. And so what's neat is doing the second one is definitely easier than the first one because it's all about track record, right? And so, you know, the first time you're raising money at Sutera, it's like, it took a long time. It took a long time to get people to buy into the story and the idea and how we're going to do it. And like find a customer. Oh man, like that was even harder. Voltagrid has been a bit of a unique story where we have raised 
you know, including debt, almost well over a half a billion dollars of cash already. And from a customer standpoint, it's just been an absolute almost home run, quite honestly, on how we've grown. So the stories are a little different, but like the ingredients haven't changed. I think we just bake the bigger cake and turn the oven temp up a little bit more and bake it quicker. But it's all hard work, like honestly, and I know it's a classic story, but it's hard work and just having the passion and like navigating because you run into these obstacles that can just break you, like absolutely break. I remember two Decembers ago, I hit one of these obstacles that was just, it was tough. It was really tough. And like my wife would walk in on Saturday morning and I had been up all night, like studying legal documents, and she'd be bringing me bowls of noodles to like keep me going. I'd be like eating these noodles. She's like, honey, you haven't slept in you know, 40 hours. You need to eat some, you know? And so, you know, God bless her and all the work. She's, she's been through deep startups now. But, you know, you just got to push through. You got to push through. Can you talk a little bit about, though, during the Volta Grid time? I mean, it was pretty much during COVID and you couldn't really meet face-to-face. So that, like breeds a whole nother challenge. How was that? And was it because of the prior trust and relationships that it wasn't really maybe that difficult to get somebody on a Zoom call, but still selling somebody over Zoom, I feel like is not near as good as being in person. So did you have any challenges there? Oh, yeah. So that was was probably another statement. Starting a power company for fracking in the middle of COVID when oil's 20 bucks and the world thinks it's going to run on pixie dust and solar panels and wind farms. That is not the right recipe. I will tell you that. And so, you know, you talk about the stress test. Oh, and by the way, we're an extremely capital intensive business. So we need a, a lack of money. It was, well, it definitely wasn't easy. I'll tell you that. But here's the neat thing. You know, I think conventionally, a lot of people think you have to raise money like this or like this or whatever the formula that you Google on the internet says you have to do it. You know, we were able to source a different bucket of capital that wouldn't conventionally probably find its way into such an early startup. You know, if you look, you know, publicly, you can, can look at our shareholders, but, you know, you think of it, you know, we've got the Canadian Pension Plan as one of the biggest shareholders actually at this point. We were one of their very first ever startup investments, you know, like I actually think we're the first. And so, you know, you think about just the due diligence and the cycle that they had to go through. We had to learn, right? Where you have this pension plan as a shareholder. Well, they look differently at investing than other shareholders do. You know, our second biggest shareholder is Pilot, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. You know, that's a corporation, which isn't a conventional PE fund, just deploying capital. They're a corporation. And so they think of investments differently. And then, you know, we've got quite a few other kind of not fully named shareholders out of corporations too. And so, you know, much different, but what's come out of this is a much different thought process of how we deploy capital in the projects where we're not gunning for X rate of return based on a certain outcome at a certain point go. You know, we've got an overall mission that we're running at that includes the interests of all of our shareholders because they're strategically owning the position they do. And so it's been different. It's taken longer to structure it that way. But, you know, you talk about alignment, you know, our shareholders aren't just shareholders. They are like partners in the capital we deploy, how we operate in the field. You know, we bought a big CNG business from Pilot just before Christmas, who continues to be a huge shareholder of us. So you talk about a win-win from an asset transaction, couldn't be better. And so definitely more different than the normal slate of entrepreneurs and how they run up the capital. 
But man, do I ever feel like we got the recipe. I would encourage a lot of people to think about how you structure your shareholder base and get the most out of, out of your shareholders. So it's been really good though. Really good. That's a super long answer to your first one. That's a really good insight though. Thanks for sharing. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group, and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now, back to the show. My mind is just going all over the place and thinking is, how did you think about this business in a frack business when like, had you been to the field before? Had you seen how a frack like business worked? That's where I'm like, and you didn't have like an engineering background with, you did finance. So how were you into the frack business without ever being really in the frack business? And then two, how did you select the right people to build this for you? Because you need someone that knows how to do that stuff. So how did you select your team as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the neat thing was, you know, when I was at Soteris, we fueled a lot of the frack fleets across North America. So, you know, had a ton of experience and really, really it was just about the relationships that we developed. You know, I bet you at one point we probably fueled 90% of the U.S. markets for hydraulic fracture for CNG. And so it was really just about, you know, like anything, you got good relationships and people trust you. You know, that works for raising capital, raising customers and having the best talent join your team. So it's really just a commitment on the relationships and learning kind of how the fuel market works and, and really seeing that the world is going to electrify itself. There is no question about that. The question is really how it plays out is where does the electrons come from? Right. And whether that's a fossil fuel base, the solar farm, windmill, you know, magic electron box machine. The reality is the energy transition story is all types of energy going forward. And I think the market's actually starting to fully realize that now. And so the U.S. market is electrified from a frack perspective. It is happening. Uh, and it's likely happening faster than people really imagine it's happening. And so Ultragrid's story was really built off the premise that taking an independent power company with its frack partners can shift the capital burden off of the energy service company and allow the independent to capitalize those assets under a different structure that may have other end goals to go and work on. As an example, we don't just provide power to a frack company. We take those assets and inject them into the grid, make power for the grid. And so we can capitalize it in a different fashion. And then also paired with that, if you think about the three-legged stool of, of electrification in the U.S. market, it's a great pump, it's great power, and it's great fuel. If you don't have power, the pumps don't work. If you don't have fuel, the pumps and the power don't work. And so you think about 
what you're trying to achieve at a expedited pace, you have to have a very good three-legged suit. Very, very good. In our case, we do. We have that today. And so that's why we bought the pilot business before Christmas. That was about a $200 million acquisition for us and has enabled us to be an absolute force of reckoning where we've got the most cost-efficient fuel platform. We have a massive power business now deployed and running, and we're coupling the synergies on both of those in real time. So it's been a lot, but it's pretty neat. So like you mentioned, you guys have grown just an insane amount in a year and a half or two. How have you been able to deal with small startup, a lot of micromanagement, you're in all the decisions being made, you were 17 employees, you know, initially to now 300 plus. How do you get out of that mindset of small startup? And now there's systems in place, you have managers below you that manage teams, that's very difficult. A lot of people don't think that that growth can be difficult. How did you manage that? That is a great question. That's a great question. You know, it's true. We've gone from, I think it's 1126 to we're over 300 today. And I don't know if we've totally lost the entrepreneurial spirit or the small company. We didn't get our office. This is, I'm not making this up. We didn't get our office until December the 13th of last year. We went two years with being like, just transient, like you work anywhere you can, you know, you find a hotel lobby, go work a hotel lobby, you know, <laughs> that really forced us to be like the virtual company. Now we have two offices, but you know, because of that, I think it's pushed out the crossover point where we have to really become a big company because we're so good at working as a virtual based organization, or at least virtual between all the facilities we have around the U S. And so, you know, do we have the hierarchy and the structure today? Yeah, of course we do. And we'll add another 200 employees here, you know, this year. I bet you we pop out of this year at 500 plus. But, you know, the model we have working today is fully working, which is empowerment and making everybody a shareholder so that the decisions they make in the field, they have in the best mindset of being an owner. And it works. You know, we really value somebody who comes in and develops basically a space for more opportunity within not just North America, but this will be successful and grow beyond that. And with that, you know, there becomes this also this conversation around as a business owner, your second startup, I'm assuming you're probably going to create more businesses. So, you know, how has diverse teams helped you? And do you put any emphasis on that as you know, when you look at the research, it's proven that 87% of the time, diverse teams make more successful and better decisions than non-diverse teams. You had mentioned a few times throughout the podcast about listening to the people below you and listening to the leaders and getting the decisions from multiple sources within your organization. What's your perspective within the energy space, within where we're at today, with all of the requirements on ESG and diversity metrics? And how do you look at that as you build out your team? Yeah, so you didn't know this answer. I'm happy to give this answer today, right? Today, I literally pulled the stats this morning for this call in case you asked that question. Voltcrude is a majority minority in our company today. And so 57% of our staff are classified as a minority. And so if you think about 57% of the decisions that are being made at 10.38 a.m. in the morning today, that is being influenced by a majority of a minority. And so that has worked so successful for us that 
you know, I would never change it. Actually, like I think we're pushing it harder now where, you know, any decision, any big decision, any small, you know, I'd say more big decisions that are made. Like we are not just making those at like a corporate level. Like I remember when we were developing a bonus plan for our drivers teams, you know, we were flying drivers in from West Texas to sit with us and be like, okay, like whiteboard, like let's go. And so it's really trying to just like include all voices at the table because I promise you, everybody has a voice. Adoption of that idea will be through the roof, especially when they're a shareholder. Mm-hmm. I think you yeah. found the secret recipe to a successful business is definitely owning a little piece of it because you are going to fight just as hard as a CEO or anywhere in the organization that you're in and being part of the decisions. Like you said, everyone having just a little bit of a voice when it's time to implement, you're like, yeah, I was part of that decision. And so it works really well. So on the last question that we have for you is looking back at your career and just overall, you're all of the successes, but the challenges, what is something that you would tell yourself, I don't know, 24 year old in investment banking, thinking he's going to do his CFA. Like, what would you tell yourself knowing everything that you know now? You know, it's funny. I have a poster that works out here. I throw it in my camera, but, and it's a poster of myself from my future self to me right now. It's kind of funny, which is you should actually have a work-life balance, right? Because like, I know I don't today, or at least not enough of one. And so I'm trying, you know, my future self was trying to remind me today that I should have that because I think that's the most important thing. You know, I got a baby on the way in 48 days from now. And so I'm trying to train myself where if you just relax and you take a little bit of time off, it will make you more efficient, like in what you do. Right. And if you think about the role that I'm in now, where I've got this amazing team underneath me, you know, I don't fight the fight battle the daily items. I spend half my day now just thinking like, what is the next craziest thing we should be doing? Right. And those ideas don't percolate sitting in front of Excel, pounding something else. They sit, you know, running at Memorial Park because then you can clear your head And you're like, wait a minute, if we did this, I can drive costs out of this and be the lowest cost provider in our gas transport business because I'm going to cross utilize employees on location. So I should go make a $200 million house. It's a bit of a stretch, but it's not that far off of it. And so that's the advice I have for myself and for others, but that helps you in everything, right? It's not just, you know, work related. You give your brain downtime, great things will just pop out of it. Okay. Well, first of all, Nathan, congratulations. We are so excited for your first child. That's amazing. So congratulations on that. But second of all, you just really closed with the best point, which is really around mental health. And we see a big struggle in that in today's workforce, in today's world with social media and all of the outlets that we have to consume our mind. And for you as an entrepreneur and for those listening that want to do something great and do something out of the box and think outside of the box, you have to have that downtime. You have to have time where your brain is turned off and you're just with yourself. You're running, you're meditating, whatever it is, because that's when the great ideas come and you are proof of that. And we are just beyond thankful to finally get you on the podcast today. 
And just knowing where you started when we first had our conversation like a year and a half ago with like 18 employees to now over 300 in just such a short period of time, we're just so thankful to be able to capture this in this episode and capture, you know, the great success that you have had and all of the knowledge that you have shared. And not to mention you're so young in your career too. It's just really inspiring. So we're just so thankful that you came on and we're just really excited to continue to watch you grow in this space and see what you do next. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for having me and best of luck to yourselves. And maybe a year from now, we'll have another chat and see what that number looks like. <laughs> I love that idea. All right. See you girls. And if you like this episode, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment, a review. Tell us what you think about Nathan and his success. So thank you so much for listening today and we'll see you in the next one.